Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Jim Kubik. We're going to talk today. We've been in the He Is series. And so we've been talking, and I know I say the same thing over and over again, but it's for a purpose because I want to make sure that just in case you weren't in the room or haven't been in the room for the series, you know why we're doing what we're doing, why we're talking about what we're talking about. We're talking about He Is, what He Is. Because I'm convinced, I'm absolutely convinced that part of the reason the Christian doesn't live the life that they should live is because they don't know who they are. Well, you can't know who you are unless you know who your father is. Amen? And so we're trying to talk about or trying to just open up the word and discuss and discover together who God is so that we can know who we are, so we can know what he expects of us, so we know the reasons he's worthy of our worship. Amen? And so I'm going to continue that today with a he is love. I'm going to talk about the love of God. You want to talk about the easiest subject in scripture to talk about. Um, so I'm I'm going to be all over the place today. I'm just going to put my Bible in my hand, and I want you guys to just follow along best you can, all right? Because I'm super excited about this, because up until this point, we've talked about a lot of incredible things, things that should cause us to walk truly in reverential fear of God, that, that he is big and capable and mighty to save, but he's, if he's mighty to save, that means he's also mighty enough to destroy, if that's what he intended to do. That he saved us, but he could have just as easily have killed us, and probably had a or not probably, absolutely had a right to do that, but he didn't determine to do that for us. He determined to love us instead, to pour his love out on us. And so everything we've talked out to this point has been for the purposes of establishing or showing where we should be reverentially fearful of God. That means have a reverence for him that causes us to be in submission of him. To, these are the things that, quite honestly, left alone, excluding the love of God, should cause us to want to keep God, like the Israelites did around the mountain, at an arm's length to say, Moses, no, you go talk to him. I don't want to talk to him. He's freaking me out. If you're not familiar with that story in the book of Exodus, God comes down on a mountain and he tells the people, come around and have the people come around. I'm going to speak to them from the mountain. And the people were, they, they were taken aback by his majesty, by his glory, by the cloud, by the sound, by the lightning and the thunder. And they just, it's too much. I can't do it because they didn't have a personal relationship with him. All they saw was this magnificence of who he was and they were scared by it. Sadly, a lot of times in our religiosity, this is where we start start and end with God. We have this, man, I don't really want, that, that freaks me out a little bit. I, that, that scares me. And rightfully so. These things that we've talked about cause us to, to want to put God's at arm's length. But it's the love of God that causes us to want to step in. Amen? In all of his glory and all of his magnificence and all the strength and might that he has to destroy or create or do whatever he intends to do. He is determined to focus his attention as mighty and as wonderful as it is on us to love us. And so where we would normally go, ah, we should step into that space. Isaiah chapter six gives a great, not an illustration, but an example of this exact thing, I'm pretty sure Isaiah is in the Old Testament. Let me turn to it. Just if you're visiting, I know it's in the Old Testament. That was a joke. Not a good one, apparently. 
right. One through six, chapter six, Isaiah reads like this. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. This is Isaiah talking about the vision that he has of God. Lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. That, that is the gl his glory filling the temple. The magnificence of who he is filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each, living six, each having six wings. With, with two he covered his face, two his feet, and, two with his, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory, full of your majesty, full of this awesomeness that you are. I've added those words. And the foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. Imagine that, just that. That would freak you out, right? It freaked Isaiah out. He said, and I know that because this is the next thing he says. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. Exclamation point. Pay attention to the periods and the commas and the exclamation points. Pay attention to the punctuation in Scripture. Isaiah is reverentially fearful in this moment. He realizes that he is standing in front of a God he holds no power over, that he has no right over, that he's just literally in submission to his will. He has no other option or choice. He says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. How many of you guys have ever been there? If you've ever given your life to the Lord, if you've, that second you tasted grace, you had a woe is me moment, for I am ruined. I, I am unclean, and I am in the presence of the perfectly clean, the holy, the magnificent, the strong, and he's capable of destroying me. But for some reason, in this moment, he's decided not to do that. He's extended grace to me. This is the moment that Isaiah is having. In all this brilliance, all this revelation, this point of revelation that all of us have, at some point when we first taste grace, we stand and go, oh, no, God, that's the reason our heart rips and breaks in our chest out our heart rips out of our chest in those moments because we know that we aren't good enough to be in the presence of God. And the truth of the matter is we aren't good enough to be in the presence of God. Except that God loves us and made us worthy and capable of standing in His presence. Amen? And so I really want you to grab a hold of this idea. The majesty, the strength, everything about God should cause us to do as the Israelites did in the desert and go, or the Hebrews at that time. I don't, I don't want to go there. You, you go deal with him and tell me what he says. But the love of God, the fact that he poured himself out, the fact that he did all the stuff we're going to talk about tonight, causes us to step into that otherwise fearful space and do this. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 You're writing these down. It says this, therefore, and just so you know, he's talking about because of who God is and what he's done and all of these kinds of things. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, I'm sorry, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love these two verses or sections of verses juxtaposed against each other. This moment where you're just 
you're so fearful that you think, I, I need to die right now. I don't want anything to do with, with something that big, something that magnificent. Except that, for some reason, God has determined not to kill me, but to clean me. And in cleaning me, gave me the right as a son to move from this horrified position to a place where I can draw near with confidence. Some of your Bibles may say boldness, whatever it is. It's because we have a high priest in Christ Jesus and the work that he's done, we have the right to move from that extended position into intimacy with God, walking into his throne room, expecting to receive. What do we expect to receive? We expect to receive mercy. And in that mercy, find grace in our time of need. How many of you guys have had a time of need? I have. I've had time of need today. We've all encountered times of need. Did you know God loves you enough to meet you in your need? So I want to talk about the, the love of God today. How you don't have to stand on the perimeter of the mountain. You don't have to send someone else to talk on your behalf. But because of the love that Christ Jesus has for us, because of the love that he demonstrated to us, we have the right to move into the throne room of grace expecting to receive mercy and grace in our time of need. I feel like I could just stop right there. That's such a beautiful thing because our God is big enough to be fearful of but also loving enough that we can move into whatever space he's in and expect to be treated like family, like he's our father. Pastor Rick's actually going to talk about that next week, that he is father. And so I encourage you to come listen to that. I'm not going to talk about that today. I'm going to just talk about love specifically. And I'm going to teach that, this concept, moving from where we were to where we are from Romans chapter 5. And so if you want to turn to Romans chapter 5, many of you know Romans chapter 5 is, or Romans period is about my favorite uh, book. It's not my favorite, but it's pretty close. Chapter 8 is my favorite in Romans. Chapter 5 is probably my second favorite after that, just in case anybody's keeping up with what I like and what I don't like. I don't know why you would, but anyway. I'm going to start in 6. Not because 1 through 5 isn't good, but because I'm, I'm struggling for time. Verse 6 through 11 reads like this. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare, would dare even to die. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. This text blows my mind. I want to talk to you today about the love of God. First, in five or correction, six and seven, I want to say God's love recognizes our condition. He didn't 
dispute our condition. He doesn't, he does, he's not, it's not unbeknownst to him that we were sinners. He was absolutely sure of the condition of our soul when he said to love us. And 6 and 7 says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare to die. I'm going to break this down a little bit at a time. While we were still helpless. Did you know in your sin you were absolutely helpless? I'm going to give you a basic gospel presentation today because the gospel presentation is the best way that God demonstrates his love towards us. Amen? We were helpless which means we couldn't accomplish anything on our own of any significance or eternal value, but that Christ came to die for us. That while we were helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We were ungodly. I can prove this to you in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 2 through 14, and like I said, I'm just going to flip around through some pages today. 1 Corinthians 2 14 reads like this. But a natural man, that's us in our flesh, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised, which means they're spiritually judged. Which means you were dead in your sins, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, or verse 1. You were dead in your sin. You were incapable of responding in your, in your sinfulness. You were absolutely useless. You were not just useless, but according to this text, you were helpless. You were incapable of saving yourself. Because that which needs saving in you isn't of the flesh, it's of the spirit. Because we are all sinners destined to die. That's what the Bible tells us, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in our helpless state, God determined to love us. In 3.11 it says, there is none who understand. It's Romans 3.11. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. We are totally incapable of understanding spiritual things until the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to understand spiritual things. It is the love of God that is determined to open our eyes to spiritual things. You guys understand that, right? There's nothing we can do. I wish I could just, I wish there was a way that I could verbalize more significantly how helpless and destitute and immoral and bankrupt we were before Christ came to us. We were helpless. And in that helpless state, Christ died for the ungodly, the unworthy. I am unworthy. You are unworthy of the love that God gave you. Now the American church doesn't like that. Well, you don't know who I am. I don't know who you are personally, but I know what the Bible says you are. And the Bible says that you're unworthy except that God made us worthy. So in our helplessness, in our incapable incapability, at the right time, Christ died for the unworthy. You were destined for hell. Sinner both by birth and by action. I'm not preaching anything new to you. I'm preaching the gospel message to you, but what else is there? There's one thing of first importance. And that is Christ and Him crucified. But you know what? Christ's crucifixion means nothing to the person that doesn't understand that you needed a sacrifice made for you. Because the Bible says all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And we, we get past this text because we, it becomes so familiar to us. 
But the fact of the matter is, is that we truly do live beyond our fleshly state. And it depends on how, or not how, but who we accept as to whether or not that eternal state will be in the presence of God or in hell. But we were helpless to make that decision for ourselves. The Holy Spirit came and enlightened us, and Christ died for the unworthy. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone might even begin, might even, would dare even to die. This is the verse that messed me up for three years. No one would die for a righteous man. But maybe for a good man, somebody will die. I don't know about you guys, if I was going to lay my life down for somebody, it would be for somebody that was righteous, not good. But that's not what the Bible says. It says for a righteous man, he wouldn't die. For a good man, he would die. Why would it say such a thing? It would say such a thing because none of us are righteous. Because Jesus didn't come to save the righteous. In fact, all of us are unrighteous. All of us deserve judgment. That's what John 3, 16, 17, and 18 says. That he saved us. He justified us. Because we were condemned already. So he didn't have to die for a righteous man. Why would he come to die for a righteous man? If a righteous man could be righteous, he wouldn't need the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. But sadly, there are many people that think they're good that do need Jesus Christ to die for them. I've told you this story before. My papa used to tell me, I asked him, I said, do you think that stuff my granny talks all the time is true? Do you think that if we don't accept Jesus, we're going to hell? And he'd be like, I don't know about that. This is before he gave his life to the Lord. We were walking out of Walmart. I can remember it. It was Planet, it was Planet Fitness now, but we were walking out of that old Walmart. And I asked him that question. I said, do you really think we're going to go to hell? I felt it. He, goes, he goes, I'm not going to hell. He goes, I'm a pretty good guy. He goes, I'm nice. People like me. Said some other stuff, but very similar to that. Our good isn't good enough. He was a good guy. My grandfather was the best of men. But he was the best of men. Which means that he still needs someone to die for him. I could think, in all of my sin, as, as reprobate as I was before I came to Jesus, I was a good man. I, I graduated high school. I went from high school into the military to serve my country. I went from the military to law enforcement to serve my community. I went from law enforcement on the streets to the police academy so that I could serve my state. My life was given to service to people. But you know what? Short of a confession of Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I wasn't righteous. I was just good in my own eyes, and I was still helpless, and I was still unworthy, and I was still going to hell except for that God loves me. And this is the truth that we need to not only understand, that we need to convey to other people. Now, we need to do so in gentleness, according to the word, but we, this is the message that we all need. You're not good enough. But it's not your righteousness you're standing on. The Bible says in the next verse, it says, But God, because you were helpless, because you were ungodly, because you weren't righteous, because in your own mind you were good, God demonstrated His own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
but God. Y'all know how I feel about that statement. It's all over in Scripture. It's everywhere in Scripture. It's in every one of our testimonies. We did a whole sermon series on how to give our testimony and all that kind of stuff. I was, which is what Paul's saying here, I was unworthy. I was helpless. I was ungodly. I was good, but not righteous. But God made a decision to pour out his love on me anyway. That in Christ Jesus, he thought I was, a, I was good enough to save. And now I am the righteousness of Christ because of what he did and the love that he has for me. That's the only reason I'm righteous. You can't do enough stuff. Do you hear what I'm saying? What I'm trying to do to you is, or do for you or do, tell you, demonstrate to you is that God loves us so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life because we needed it, because we were unworthy, because we were incapable, because we were ungodly, because, because we weren't righteous but we thought we were good. But good won't get us there. Our definition of good doesn't matter. If the Bible says you aren't good, you aren't good. And the Bible says exactly that. No one is righteous, not even one. This is verse 10. No one is righteous, not even one. 11, which I've already read to you, there is none who understands, none who seeks after God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. Did you catch that? There's none who does good. Not, you're not a good person. Not according to the standard which you're measured by. There is not even one. And then he goes into talking about all the stuff and horribleness that we are. My point is, in lieu of all of that, Jesus decided to come for you anyway. Why? Why would Jesus do such a thing? The answer simply is because he loves us. And that, that blows my mind. It should blow all of our minds. We should meditate on this day and night that I was unworthy, but God made me worthy. I was incapable of saving myself, but God saved me. I was good, but God made me righteous. But God demonstrated his love towards me and that while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. And he died for me years and years and years ago, knowing that this point, that point in history would happen. That there would be a point where he revealed himself to me, where I accepted that revelation, where I began to walk out righteousness. You're not going to get it right all the time, but you know what? If you repent, the same love that saved you will make you righteous again. Oh, praise God. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So then he starts telling, because Jesus saved us, because Christ died for us, you need to know that you're justified. What does that mean? That means you are no longer charged as guilty. That you are innocent of all charges. All charges against you have been dropped. Even greater than that, it's as though the charges never existed in the first place. Your record is clean. The Bible says in different places that he forgets your sin, that he's removed it from as far 
from you as the east is to the west, that he has thrown it into the ocean and forgotten about it, that he's placed your sin behind him. We need to understand that God justified us. Don't walk in condemnation. I, I love Romans chapter 8 because it says, therefore now there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. If you walk around condemned about a sin that you've already repented of, the enemy has a hold of your life. Because condemnation is the counterfeit to uh, conviction. Conviction solves a problem in you. Condemnation just allows you to repeat that same feeling over and over and over again, but does nothing to benefit you. If God says he's forgiven you of that, and if you've confessed of that, and you've repented of that, truly repented of that, not waxed over it like, oh, <laughs> sorry about that, God, I didn't mean to do that. I mean, really get after that sin, allow the Holy Spirit to dig it out of you then there's no reason to be still thinking about that. You need to let that go. God loves you enough to have taken that from you, thrown it behind himself so he can't remember it. Stop talking about it. Not just stop talking about it, but stop walking about it. Well, man, I'm, a, I'm an alcoholic. No, you're not an alcoholic. You may have had an alcohol problem 20 years ago, but in the name of Jesus Christ, you were released from that, and his blood washed you clean, and those sins that were committed in that time caused you to be pure, no longer useless, but worthy of the love that he poured out for you. All right, I'm going to start preaching on a Wednesday night, but that's how I feel. I, I just hate to see people say, but I'm, you don't know who I am. I don't know who you are. God, know who you, God knows who you are, but he also knew who you were. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, so that who you were is no longer who you are. So stop calling yourself who you are, who you were. So I think that's right, right? Yeah. You ain't that no more. There's a little Lebanon in it. All right. But he justified us. That's so good. But he didn't just justify us. He justified us by his blood. Which means that he wiped your slate clean with the most precious commodity in the universe. That's how you know you're worth something. Because God spent the best thing he has on you so that you might belong to him which is his precious blood, which is the only way that the remission of sin happens. The Bible is clear to say, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Y'all remember back in the story of Genesis where man fell, committed the original sin, they realized they were naked and God killed an animal and covered them with the hides of that animal? You know why he did that? Well, let me tell you why he didn't do that, because they were naked. He didn't do that because they were naked. I mean, it's husband and wife. They're naked around each other. Every husband and wife I've ever met been naked around each other. Why would God cover that up? He covered them because something had to die because sin was committed. And he covered them so that they may be washed in the blood of that animal. Because without the, forget, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So he needed to be true to his word because he's a perfect judge and he's a perfect God that never tells a lie. Something had to die because they sinned. And God allowed that death to cover their sin, that blood to be shed by their skin, but that or that that blood to cover their flesh. But can I tell you that was an imperfect sacrifice that had to be done year after year after year in different ways for different sins, except when Jesus decided to come and justify you, who was the perfect sacrifice because he never sinned, he was absolutely without blemish because he is God. You're covered in the same way 
with the blood of Jesus. I read, we, we reserve the crucifixion for times around Easter. But I challenge you this week, go read the story of the crucifixion in Matthew and Luke. He submitted himself to torturous behavior. It says a cohort of Roman soldiers. If you don't know what that is, that's 600 Roman soldiers beat on him. If they only, if only, if they only hit him one time, each. A cohort is 600 Roman soldiers. I've been punched in the face four or five times and been unrecognizable. Imagine so many people hitting you. Imagine you being strapped to a post and having your skin ripped off your, off your bones to the point that your bones are displayed. Imagine people, because the people that you came to save spitting on you and cursing you and blaspheming you. These people that you love enough to do it, determining to, to set their hatred on you. Imagine him dragging his cross. I, I, I know I've, this is so important. He drug that rough timbered cross across that freshly torn back down bumpy roads and every time that cross beam would have hit a bump it would have torn back open that muscle and that tissue and he did it and he did it and he did it and then he was dropped down in that hole and he, he was just humiliated why? because he loves us he justified us he shed his blood for us because he loves us God is love, but God, so good, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He justified us by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. You know, there's two punishments we deserve as sinners. We deserve the punishment of death and the punishment of God's wrath. You know, you could die but never face the wrath of God. You could face the wrath of God and never die. But if you've given your life to Jesus because God loved you and made him, his blood accessible to you, you don't have to do either. You don't have to die and you don't have to face God's wrath because Jesus faced both of those things. He was the substitutionary atonement and the penal atonement for us which means he received the punishment for us and substituted his life for our life. Paul says, death has no sting. Death, where is your victory? Death has no sting. Death has no victory for a believer. You know why? Because Jesus took that death on himself. He became sin so that we could be the righteousness of God through him. Why? Why? Because he loves us. Guys, I'm not talking religious platitude to you. I want you to understand, if you can't, it's the reason why I covered all this other stuff first. This is the same guy that could have just as easily and as powerful enough to say, mess that up, you're dead. I'll make somebody else a little more obedient. And would have had every right to do it. Because he had creative license over us. He has creative license over us. I used to build furniture. When I, for fun, back when I had time to do such things. If I built a table, took it out in my yard, and set it on fire, I built it. It's mine. Ain't none of your business. God made you. If he decided to destroy you, it's none of your business. 
He has every right in the world to do it. But he decided not to because he loves you and instead determined to pour out his wrath and his punishment on his son so that he could spend eternity with you. So that you could be with him, so that you can enjoy him for all of eternity. That's how much the God that we serve loves us. Man, isn't that that's beautiful? Because we weren't righteous, but in our own mind we thought we were good. He says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Did you know we had to be reconciled to God because we were at enmity with God, we were at war with God? Our unrighteousness couldn't be in agreement with his righteousness, our imperfection in agreement with his imperfection. And so he removed that enmity between us, that conflict between us, so that we might be reconciled to God. Colossians 1 22 and, I'm sorry, yeah, 21 and 22 reads like this. And though you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, that means you were hostile in mind, you were totally opposed and confrontational to God, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's how much he loves you. But you know what? God's love should provoke a response in us. So far, all I've done is talked about what God did for you. But God's love should provoke a response in you and requires things of you. In this text, the last verse says like this, and not only this, but we also exult, which means we, we find joy, we celebrate in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We've been reconciled. We've been removed from enmity in relationship with God. Jesus Christ took both the wrath and the punishment, the death that we deserved because we, he, he gave his blood, shed his blood for us that we might be justified because we were good in our own mind, not righteous. Everybody following where I'm going there up the chain? He did that and expects us to carry that word of reconciliation. Not just in our own body, not just in our own spirit, but to the world around us. God expects us to tell other people about what he's done for us. So that other people might be reconciled to him too. So that other people can move from Isaiah's position to our position. To where we could say, mm, I have the confidence because Christ is my high priest to move confidently into his throne room, expecting to receive mercy and grace in my time of need. So two-thirds or better of this community can't say that. Did you know that? It's horrible. It's not enough for us just to learn. Learning without doing is worthless. What's the point? having a bunch of information locked in your head you're never going to use. The information is for the purpose of revelation. Revelation only happens so that you can be motivated. Let us be motivated so that we can carry this ministry of reconciliation according to 1 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 to the world. It says this, 
I think it's Second Corinthians. I'm sorry. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Can I ask you, do you know the love of Jesus? And have you shared the love of Jesus? Everything he did in you happened because he loved you. But what he did in you, he also expects to do through you. People should know the God that you serve. People should worship the God that you worship because of the way they see you live, because of the fact that you have Jesus in your mouth, because when they have a question, and they will, when the world turns upside down like it is right now, where are people going to find you? Are they going to find you hunkered down with your mouth shut? Or are they going to find you with your mouth open, telling them the only real hope that there is? I think of Jonah. Jonah was the man of God, sent for a purpose. He ran away from that purpose. The world turned upside down for those sailors. Where did they find Jonah? They found him in the bottom of that boat. So the question is, will the world find us hiding and hunkering in the bottom of the boat? Or will the world find us proclaiming that Jesus Christ loves us enough that he shed his own blood to justify us? My prayer is that we be convictional and be willing to tell in gentleness that truth. Having first received that truth. Amen? Amen.